Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I believe that leadership creates a strategic advantage and is a key lever to create the world that we all want to inhabit and leave as a legacy for next generations. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I am absolutely delighted to have on our show today, Kevin Cassidy, the director and representative to the Brenton Woods Multilateral Organization for the International Labor Organization Office for the United States and Canada. Kevin, would you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Thanks very much. In my job in the ILO, it's a UN agency. We're one of the best kept secrets in the UN system itself. We're around for a hundred years. We come out of the Treaty of Versailles alongside the League of Nations. And it's a very important aspect of the development work because work sits at the nexus of the economic and social spheres. Our job is to help the governments around the world to understand a bit better about how labor is an important aspect of our modern economy. And we work through our normative role, which we set the international standards. We are a tripartite organization, which means that unlike any other UN agency, we bring together governments, workers, and employers to look at the world of work. But we're also an international economic actor with a voice at the G7, the G20, the OECD, the World Bank. So it's a very important role to understand how work is important for economic growth and social progress. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And we're delighted to have you share your experiences with our listeners. Our second and very distinguished guest is Christopher Washington. He's the provost and executive vice president for academic affairs for Franklin University. Christopher, if you would tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. I'm excited that I've recently been appointed to the America 250 International Advisory Council to really help to celebrate our country's 250th birthday with our international friends. More importantly, given this interview today, I am a very interested stakeholder in providing accessible, inclusive, relevant education and a champion for the role of universities in workforce development. Thank you. Today's session, how has the pandemic changed the workforce both regionally and globally? What can be done about this drastic change in demographics? Kevin and Christopher joined the show to discuss the role of the ILO, the International Labor Organization, to examine the trends in employment, to consider emergent ideas such as changing dimensions of job quality, provide insights on populations differently impacted by the pandemic, and to enlighten listeners to effective human-centered recovery strategies and recommendations from the ILO. By now, your listeners, Maureen, have probably heard about the Great Resignation the great job migration, the gig economy, changes in the division of labor. These are all issues that the ILO seeks to understand and make sense of and share with us. I learned from their work. Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about the ILO? What's its purpose and who are its members? In my opening, I I went right into the organization because I identify very strongly with the ILO. The ILO was created to promote social justice and decent work. During the Industrial Revolution, it became very clear that people had to have their rights protected. It wasn't just that we were commodities that you put in the machine and the other side, you know, we come fully formed as sentient beings with families, with dreams, desires and, and wishes for a better life for ourselves. Work is an important part of achieving that. So the ILO, in its normative role of setting standards such as hours of work or no child labor, eliminating discrimination in the workplace, stopping forced labor, we work with the international community and with the governments, workers and employers to ensure that there is a consensus and as well as a compromise. We use different words. We use the F word a lot, fairness, as compared to maybe businesses, which may look at productivity and share of marketplace. So with our 187 member states, the UN has 194, but we are basically the same membership, except we have those workers and employers also coming. So the ILO is really focused on a number of areas that are mutually supportive. Number one is research and the sharing of those knowledge products. The collection of statistics, we have the most comprehensive collection of statistics going back 100 years. We develop a legal comparative analysis to look at what economic policies are working and what policies are less effective. 
We provide assistance to governments in drafting legislation around the world. We provide policy technical advice. We convene conferences with governments and technical experts. We participate in the meetings of the World Bank, the UN, the UN's General Assembly, Security Council, looking at issues as disparate as trafficking in the Yazidis, as into global supply chains and eliminating forced labor. So the ILO is really at the crux of this intersection, as I mentioned, between the social and the economic. Well, you know, Kevin, it seems that governments and employers have taken a lot of measures to preserve jobs, to protect incomes of their peoples during the last year and a half, this pandemic. But nevertheless, it seems that this pandemic has aggravated existing inequalities. What's your thoughts on that? I think without a doubt that COVID-19 has shown how we are a bit threadbare in our social safety nets. People have been falling into abject poverty at increasing rates. Women have been leaving the workforce because there are no gender-responsive policies that allow for women to both look after work, but also look after children. Also, in, they have a disproportionate role in, um, in raising and uh, taking care of the elderly as well, too. So I, I think what the pandemic has done is that it has laid bare a lot of concerns and problems that all of us are facing. Now, it has been a two-track development or a recovery from the onset of COVID. And we can get a little bit more into that. But recently at the G20 meeting in Rome, the declaration and President Biden was there amongst all the other leaders of the G20 countries that they adopted a employment and social protection strategy in their declaration. And that is looking at how do we promote social dialogue? How do we get the workers and employers to sit down and to ensure social justice, safe, healthy working conditions, decent work for all men and women, including in supply chains? How do we reduce the inequalities, eradicate poverty, support workers in their transitions in labor markets, strengthening these social protection systems so that people don't fall into abject poverty? It's so important to have a coordination and a harmonization of policies around the world. Otherwise, people get left behind. And when people are left behind and people are suffering and in such deprivation, that's when the economic spills over into the social and then into the political sphere. So work is a very important part of having good functioning economies as well as good functioning political systems. This is so big, it's hard to grasp touching all workers everywhere in the world and dealing with our biggest issues. Can you give an example of a specific policy and kind of how that's rippled through different countries and different systems? We've been monitoring all of the different policies that have been coming out of government, some policies more effective than others. A lot of it comes down to fiscal space. A lot of countries don't have that revenue stream in order to pay for what we call social protection. Social protection is a kind of a life cycle approach. So it's everything from nutritional assistance for the young, opportunities for early pre-K education, access to health care, uh, transition from school into work. This has been very difficult for most countries to afford. So high-income countries like the United States or Germany or France, we've been providing that to people. Now, there's going to be a price to pay, of course, and in the aftermath, you're going to see the deficits going up. But it has saved people from falling into abject poverty and losing their network of contacts, which is very, very important for one's job. So in a government like in Germany, they have focused on keeping people in jobs. So in Germany, you pay a little bit of extra and people have job banks so that they could still be maintaining work, still the connection to the workplace. And that's good from an HR director's point of view, because you don't lose your talented staff and you keep them on board. But in the United States and other countries, we wait for people to be unemployed in order to support them. Now, that might be good if it's a short term, but in the long term, you need to ensure that people are actually protected in the workplace and are provided with the income. Because otherwise, then the cascading effects of the children having to leave school, of having to downsize from the apartments, selling the home. I mean, all of these things happen when you don't have that protection. So it is really important to have that social safety net, plus those active labor market policies that ensure that we can get people back to work, reskilled or upskilled, whatever is necessary to join the workforce. In the U.S., we're talking a lot about the pandemic. We have to obviously focus on vaccinations. Vaccinations are the way in which to get people back to work. Work is a very social thing. I mean, not every job is teleworkable. I think we've seen that, that the people who are on the front line, those who are healthcare workers, nurses, care providers, but even people who are stocking the shelves, delivering your food, 
people who are running bicycle shops. I mean, all of these were frontline jobs. So if people don't have the vaccination, if they don't have the proper PPEs, very difficult for them to go back to work because they have to choose between earning a living or uh, falling uh, you know, to the disease itself, which may take their life. So vaccination rates are critical to the labor market recovery. And we've seen that developing countries have done quite well, but lower income countries and least developed countries have suffered really quite badly. Now, why should we care about least developed countries or countries you know, in Asia or Africa or Latin America? Because our supply chains are based like that, because the primary commodities come from these countries. And as we're seeing now, you know, there is a, a bit of a backup of the ships out in the ports out in California, but it's more than that. It's that you can't even get people to the factories. If anyone has been to these factories in Asia or in um, Africa, you know, you're, you're seeing 5,000, 10,000, 40,000 people working in factories. You cannot have a virus raging through that factory and then being able to have on-time delivery for our clothes, for our electronics and preparing for that. So we must ensure that the vaccination rates are actually really front and center to this, because once we get the healthcare situation under control, we can start to move towards productivity growth, increasing the hours work, putting people back to work, and really looking at how do we move forward and investing in local economies, which is through infrastructure development and other approaches to that. So you talk about the great resignation, and I know that we're seeing a lot of that And it seems to be one of the biggest issues, the combination of the great resignation and just the low employment rate in some fields, which is why we have the ships offshore. What are you seeing globally and are you seeing any recommendations to address this kind of what appears to be potentially a long-term structural change in the workforce? We have to talk about the kind of bifurcated economies, right? You, you've got uh, the developed countries and we have our infrastructure, sometimes not as uh, up to scratch as they should be, but other developing countries have even less infrastructure for themselves. So I, I think one of the things that we're looking at is how do we, as I mentioned before, look at the health situation? How do we develop better infrastructures in order to get the economies moving again to, but also on how people and small and medium-sized enterprises take advantage of opportunities of becoming sort of intermediate suppliers in global supply chain. So if you don't invest in SMEs, which is really the engine growth in a lot of developing countries, and also here in the United States and in developed countries in Europe, that the SMEs will have a very hard time of surviving. And these SMEs are kind of a weather vane for how the economy is going to do. So I I think over the longer term, what we need to look at is we need to look at productivity growth, right? I mean, this is an educated workforce is necessary. So we have to look at the educational side, the skilling and the upskilling of that. We have to look at building better and resilient infrastructures in United States, as well as in many other countries that we're doing trade with. The trade that is going on today is almost ground to a halt. Anybody who is trying to go to one of the big box stores and order a tub or order materials for their home, they're going to find that there's a backlog. They're going to find that the price has doubled because it costs more to get those products to market. So when we look at the global economy, we have to look at a global solution. It is not just that we are taken care of and we've invested in in the United States or we've invested in the United Kingdom or in France for that, but we have to ensure that in the global supply chains, which have been developed over the last several decades, and in some countries like China, where you have these incredibly integrated vertical supply chains, that once things get stopped there, because there's a shutdown, people are not allowed to go to work. And so that grinds the whole global supply chain to a halt. And that is in nobody's benefit, least of which in the United States, where we depend a great deal upon goods that are made overseas. I don't think that nearshoring or reshoring is going to replace that. Globalization has been going and ticking along very nicely. And the rise in incomes for people who were formerly in poverty in China and other countries that have benefited from global supply chains are not going to want to go back to being just commodity producers. So they are going to be looking at value-added products. So we have to work on these problems together and ensure that the policies that are there are balanced looks at the productivity growth and also looks at how we are going to ensure that this unequal employment impact, right? If we have this slack in the labor market, some of it is because you know women are not returning to work because they realize it's there are other priorities for them. But it's also that a lot of people are reflecting. I don't want to go back to a job that pays me $2 an hour and to work 10 hours. People just don't want to do that any longer because they feel that they want more for themselves and that the opportunities are there. So I think this is the time for the voice of workers and to have a worker-centric approach, which in 
dialogue with our employers, we're able to come to a happy medium. So I, I think dialogue between workers and employers is absolutely essential to fixing this problem. Now I want to talk a little bit, Kevin, about this worker-centric approach. We're talking about worker centrism at a time when there's a really significant shift in the division of labor between humans and machines. And some are arguing that perhaps by 2025, there'll be a balance of work by humans and machines. So machines catching up to the level of work being done historically by humans. You know, what does this all mean, this accelerated adoption of new technologies and this change in the division of labor relative to a human-centered approach to job recovery? We have a very uh, well-defined uh, human-centered strategy in order to build back better, to borrow the term from the Biden administration. But what you were talking about is the introduction of digital technologies which are displacing workers. In 2019, before the pandemic, the ILO celebrated its centenary. And in celebrating our centenary, we had a international commission headed by the South African president uh, Ramaphosa and the Swedish prime minister Stefan Löfven. That commission had looked at the mega drivers of change. And the mega drivers of change at that time were digital technology displacing workers. It was talking about globalization. It was talking about the demographic shifts. It was talking about labor migration. It was talking about climate change. And now with COVID-19, we have to speak about pathogens. So, but now when we're talking about the mega driver of digital technology, the ILO has always been for technology, whether it was from a paddle boat to a sailboat, or whether it was from a horse and buggy to a steam engine, technology has always transformed the world of work. In the past, it was to get us away from the hard, laborious work that we were doing. And now it is doing the computational and analytical work that people used to do. This is a difficult time, I think, for a lot of people because we've kind of hollowed out the middle of managers during the last several decades. Now we're kind of getting rid of the top. It's not just the workers who are displaced. How long is it going to be before an algorithm will become your CFO, will become your CEO? This is going to be something that's going to impact upon everyone. So digital technologies, and this is where the ILO, in its human-centered strategy, looks at a human-centered approach to the introduction of technologies. So let me give you an example. Sub-Saharan Africa, about 78 to 80% of people working in Sub-Saharan Africa are in subsistence agriculture. Now, it means basically they're not making much money. It means that they're very low productivity. They're usually family farms, small shareholders, maybe two or three hectares at greatest and so, but they're exporting or selling in the local markets their commodities, but not adding value to that. So they're never going to be wealthy. If you brought in GPS-enabled carbine harvesters that would go and do all the work and create food security for the people of sub-Saharan Africa, that's great, but what are you going to do with the tens of millions of people that you have just displaced from their work? So you have to actually introduce technology in a way that allows people to transition. And for the ILO, and it comes under our larger kind of just transition, which is you know the high carbon to low carbon economy, that we have to ensure that Say, for example, there are truck drivers, although today long haul truck drivers are in demand, but eventually there'll be self-driving trucks. Maybe they'll have separate passageways for them, so they'll reduce the risks to motorists and so. But what do you do with that truck driver? Can they become a logistics officer? Can they take another job? What are the skills that are necessary? Who is paying for those skills? So when we start looking at technology and all the wonders, and recently I've been up to the Cleveland Clinic. I was interviewing a surgeon there who was a robotic surgeon and seeing the amazing work that he could do through a da Vinci machine and the patient could be in Singapore. So the time and space of delivering services and goods sometimes are no longer there. However, what does that mean for the doctor or the student that goes in and takes medical classes and spends you know, a half a million dollars on getting their degree? They're going to want to have that replaced somehow. But if there are going to be robotic surgeons, how will that impact upon them? So it's not just about the people doing the work and shifting the goods in the warehouses, but it is the people all the way up the line because, again, artificial intelligence and other digital technologies are really impacting on the world of work. So it's not something we have figured out. And with the addition of digital labor platforms, it creates even more confusion for a lot of people. I have to bring this conversation closer to home as, a, as an educator. You know, my university has been putting out talent that the employers can sort of pick, whether it's in data analytics or cybersecurity, we're producing talent. But this pandemic was rather disruptive to young people. You know, a lot of them had their education and training disrupted. Accelerated adoption of technology means that some of their skills, even those who kind of completed their education, were perhaps ill-prepared to deal with the modern workforce. 
what's the human recovery strategy that's in our view to help young people get back on pace with regard to employment? This is a really difficult area to deal with because before the pandemic, young people were having a hard time finding a foot onto the ladder of their career. In the ILO, we've done some studies where it says that if you don't get a solid job four years after leaving university, your career is set back by a decade. So the problem existed before the pandemic came. The pandemic has made it worse because the educational settings have been varied. Some people have all the technology, they have internet connectivity, they could actually do remote learning. But there are a lot of people who don't have the technology, so they're kind of left aside. And how do we provide for that? Do they have to sit with a laptop if they're able to afford a laptop outside of McDonald's or a public library in order to get the Wi-Fi signal? So we need to invest in the physical infrastructure and the uh, virtual infrastructure. So we need to actually have opportunities for people to learn and for people not to see education as 12 and done or 16 and done or 20 and four and done, however you want to structure your education and then live on that for the next 30 years. Education has to be lifelong. We will have to approach education and skilling and upskilling, not only when we're younger, but through the course of our career so that we can take advantage of the new introductions into the labor market. Young people also have to be provided with active labor market policies and that transition from school to work. How do we link up between employers that need talented people with certain skills and the young students who are coming out of school looking for a job themselves. Ensuring that people can be linked to employers, having employers speak to universities so that they can say the talent that we need or the skill sets that we're looking for are X, Y, and Z. How do we train people for that market? So I, I think a lot of work needs to be done on that. And the communication, again, it's all about communication between the workforce development by governments, by the businesses that are looking for the talent and for the schools that are preparing people for that future. But another thing has come up through COVID, and this has been really quite difficult, and I've been reading a lot about this lately, about the health impact, the mental health impacts upon young people today. They've felt isolated, they've been separated from their friends, they are more imbued into a virtual world, sometimes accessing information that is not verifiable or information that is meant to distract people or to misinform them, purposefully. So I think young people are under a lot of stress and a lot of strain emotionally, personally, with uh, connecting with others, because university and high school, these are times that you're joining clubs and you're, you're working with other people, you're understanding the world around you, you know how to have good, strong interpersonal skills, which is what employers want, good communication skills, good team building skills, problem solving, all of this suffers when an individual has to stay at home and do that. Now, one thing that it does help to be honest with you, is that the family itself becomes more important. And this has put a lot of pressure on women who would normally be in the workforce, but now understanding that their children need them. And no matter how old you get, your child is always going to be your child and you always want the best for them. So I think we have to look at the, the wider healthcare aspects of that. The digital technology is moving apace. That is going to happen. But let's make those investments to ensure that that infrastructure is there so that we can learn from that and that more open uh, online courses are available and that uh, using the technology in order to prepare people or to future-proof their resumes. You've mentioned the idea of continual learning and yet, in practicality, I still work with clients, some of whom want to just hold on long enough to slide out to retirement. For many of them, that's really not an option. They're not going to be able to hang on for 10 years and not learn something new. And yet, the other thing we know is, for probably the people who are our listeners who make high-level incomes, companies are investing in their retraining. It's our folks who are most economically volatile. The companies are less likely to invest in them or invest significantly, and they don't have the resources. So my company implements robotic process automation. For some people, that means we get to do more interesting work, less routine, more analytics. And yet we have a cadre of people who aren't equipped to do more analytics as it stands now. I assume this is a big concern for the ILO. Help us understand what you're looking at. You know, at the ILO, because we're not just for the developed world, we are for the emerging economies and for developing countries. I mean, someone has to provide protection for their rights as well, too. And quite honestly, outside of the developed countries, money for investing in education is not always there. 
the training that's taking place may not be commensurate with what the market is looking for. And hence, a lot of people are going to be stuck in these dangerous, dirty and dull jobs, mostly physical type of jobs. So I, I think what we need to understand is that it's a big world out there. Some of us will do well in terms of the skilling that we have or the opportunities for skilling that we have. But, you know, a lot of people around the world just don't have the opportunity to pay for education. There are millions of young women, young girls in Africa who can't go to school, mainly because of a misuse of cultural custom that they don't think that it's worthwhile because the woman will be married, the child will be married off soon enough, and that'll be somebody else's problem. By the analogy as a pianist, if you play only one hand, if it's only men at the world of work, you have a certain melody to it, but you need the other hand in order to bring it all together. So I, I think the idea is that we have to understand that in developing world, that there's a very different calculus that they are not moving ahead with technology integration as much as we are here. Although when given that opportunity, they move ahead quite fast. Looking at Singapore, which 40 years ago was one of the worst performers GDP-wise in Asia. Now they are a powerhouse of financial institutions because they, in, they invested in education. So education is an absolute important part of that. But it's also looking at the young people who are coming through and how the government and what that social contract between the government and the worker. Today, I mean, how many people have pensions? How many people can afford to retire? Who is going to have the health care to be able to pay for the, the costs that are coming on? So I think a lot of problems that we face right now are really just cascading by, example, miscategorizing workers, disguising employment that, that kind of you know, gives the appearance that the underlying reality is different. So, for example, the rise of the gig economy. Everybody wants to be their own employer. It's very tough to find a job. We've done analysis and we see that, for example, on the ride sharing apps, that most of those workers are spending a third of their hour looking for their next job. So they are not making a windfall of cash, even though it may be flexible. But the market has been flooded, the costs have come down, and they're realizing that it is not even paying a living wage for them. So when we start to look at the issue about how technology is impacting upon the developed world, how the lack of education and the opportunities in the developing world, we are coming to a bit of a crisis because we need to work together. If we are not looking at the globalization that we have brought upon by our work, I mean, it's a great thing. Globalization and global supply chains bring to us the goods on time, which we need, when we need it, and it provides opportunities for people around the world. We want to have higher education so that we have higher level jobs, but not everyone will benefit from that. So we do need to look at these issues because who wants to see millions of people come migrating into a country, which then generates or engenders distrust, despise of the other. This is something that we need to look at. And again, that's the social progress that the ILO is really fundamentally situated on. Social justice is absolutely essential to economic growth, because if we don't have both of those working together, we're not going to get there in an effective way. And the inequalities are going to rip any society apart, whether it's developed or developing. This has been really important to me recently because I work with several clients who are now senior executives who were either displaced as refugees or displaced because of war in their countries. And I happen to work with them in the U.S. and they've become brilliant contributors to our economy. We're struggling to find enough people to come to do jobs. And yet we don't seem to have in many cases, immigration-friendly policies, especially as we're looking at people in countries that are incredibly war-torn or ravaged by hurricanes. And it seems like, again, having a global mechanism to help balance, not that humans are commodities, but precious human beings who are struggling and suffering how do we help people migrate in a way that is productive and generative for everyone? It's not a simple question. And I'm sure that you know that in working with your, your clients and the other organizations as well, too. I mean, the ILO is very much involved in labor migration issues because most migration today is for labor issues. You know, my grandparents had come from Ireland to the United States and looking for a better job. And they had the work ethic where they said, well, maybe I might do it in my lifetime and have a great life, but my children will and my grandchildren will. And that's played out. That's, that's kind of embedded in us. But sometimes people are fleeing civil war. They're fleeing climate disasters. 
We're looking at Haiti. I've just spoke to my colleague who is the UN communications person there, and Haiti is tearing itself apart where the gangs are roaming the street and their source of income is to kidnap people and offer them up for ransom. So, so what we have to look at is that immigration can bring in tremendous talent that we need, but it also brings in the next generation. Don't see the immigrant as that person alone who doesn't speak my language, doesn't wear the clothes that I do, doesn't look like I do, because all of us in this country, unless you're a Native American, we are all foreigners in this country intergenerationally. So I, I think what we need to see is that there is great advantage to bringing the best and the brightest. And I think the United States and uh, France and in Germany and Singapore, I mean, countries in certain regions are attracting people to come into the country because they want to be a part of that. They want to contribute to that. They know the opportunities are there and they're taking the chance on doing that, leaving everything they know, their language, their culture, their food, their family connections to come and give their children a chance. I admire that. I applaud that. And we have to create fair recruitment. The ILO has a fair recruitment initiative. So it's not just about who is hiring it. For example, if you're looking for a job, if you're paying a fee for someone to find you a job, that's again wrong. I mean, you can monetize it in certain ways, but the payment actually should come from the company that is looking for the people who are can find those jobs. But you also have to look at, for example, in agricultural workers that are coming into the United States. There are very few Americans, per se, American, that uh, term that we were just talking about, want to actually go in the fields and pick watermelons or pick cotton or to work on big farms. It's just it's not something that we feel that that's our aspiration, but many other people find that work to be fine. They'll do it because it will give them a foothold into the next level for their children, for their opportunities. So we need to look at our employment policies. We need to ensure that the employers are actually treating people well, that they're paying them what they said that they would pay them, that they're not separating those families, that they provide opportunities for the families that come with them. And when people come with their families, they work harder, they know what the objective is for themselves. And I feel at the end of the day that we need to look at you know, strengthening those processes by which people can be leveraged for greater economic growth and social progress. Kevin, I've had the opportunity to hear you speak on several occasions. We've been talking during this interview about individuals and groups that have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, women, young people, people in emerging economies, all these things. But there is something that you talk about that I think really resonates with me and gives me hope. And that is this idea of an effective human-centered recovery strategy. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about ISO's ideas about what that is, a human-centered recovery strategy. It's a very simple premise. Look behind the economic aggregates, like GDP figures. Look at what's happening in the labor markets, in people's lives. Look how inequalities are growing. We know that this has to be based on people. So the ILO, with its mandate on social justice and decent work, advancing this human-centered recovery and this call to action has four specific pillars, which requires international and regional coordination and policy coherence. So the first one we look at is creating inclusive, sustainable economic growth and employment. We have to generate employment-intensive investment, for example, infrastructure. I mean, infrastructure investment is a great way to put money into local economies because infrastructure is built locally, right? You have to be on the ground and you have to do it. So it's a great way to do it. We have to also strengthen those active labor market policies that know when the investments are being made, what are the resources that we need, what are the skill sets that are required. So really to promote this environment of entrepreneurship and creating sustainable enterprises. We also need to look at boosting productivity uh, through diversification and innovation. I mean, the United States is an innovation economy. We are at the high end of that. Many countries will not reach that for many decades, but we need to sort of harness the full potential of our technological progress, including digitalization. We need to ensure that platform work creates decent jobs for people and not makes them digital day laborers as we had in the docs in the past. We also need to promote skills development opportunities. So that's all under the creating the inclusive and sustainable growth markets. The other aspect, the second one is protecting workers. So this is a rights-based approach. We need to respect fundamental rights like an adequate minimum wage, like closing the gender wage gap, like maximum limits on working time, looking at safety and health issues in the workplace. We also need to take action against rights violations. People today know the terms of child labor and forced labor or human trafficking. 
people are vulnerable, especially when they're migrant workers. They become extremely vulnerable because somebody can take away their passport. Somebody could denounce them to the authorities. They could be thrown in jail. So we need to protect workers. And now with the remote working, we need to adapt teleworking and other new working arrangements to retain and expand decent work opportunities. Now, not everybody can telework. I mean, a, a bus driver, a fireman, a policeman, a teacher maybe could telework, but a lot of jobs, you have to be there. We're in the people business. So we have to ensure that people can get decent work for themselves. And it can also help those who are at home. So for example, women who are staying at home because childcare is important to them, or violence and harassment has been a barrier to them in the workplace, doing telework would be great for somebody who wants to stay at home and look after their children. So we have to really mind that for the potential that it is. The third pillar is what we call universal social protection. You know, this is about social safety nets, right? So how do we, over the life cycle, ensure that there's basic income security, that people have access to essential health care and to education, we need to know that people have access to unemployment protection. If you're in the gig economy, you are not protected by the law. You are an own account worker. You are on your own. So we need to ensure that people are protected. We need to have people have adequate access to paid sick leave. And I think really quite importantly as well is to ensure that the work-life balance and the sharing of responsibilities is between men and women. So it shouldn't disproportionately disadvantage women who want to get into the workplace. So we have to look at that. The fourth pillar, which I mentioned before, which is communication or what we call social dialogue. Social dialogue is when workers and employers and governments in the either tripartite or bipartite, workers and employers, sit down respect one another, and then see how we can promote the business, how we can be more productive. How can we be a center of excellence? How can we ensure that we retain the best talent, right? Because the business's interest to bring in the best talent. And what you have to do is sit down and talk to people about what they're looking for, what their ambitions are, and putting in a good and strong HR policy that protects the workers. We also need to ensure that governments are consulting with employers, that are consulting with workers on designing these sort of recovery plans and addressing the need to retain workers in their workplace, as well as business continuity. Many businesses had folded because the supply has dried up, right? I mean, people are not going out to eat. Restaurants had closed. People are not going to Broadway. Shows shut down. I mean, all of this has a cascading effect. And then we also need to strengthen the capacity of the public administration of employers and workers. I am a strong believer in the fact that the public sector is extremely important as much as the private sector. Why are we not looking at public-private partnerships? Why aren't we moving that further forward? The public administration system, like labor inspectors, are absolutely essential, not only here in the U.S., but globally. So coming at it from a global perspective, these four pillars of looking at inclusive and sustainable economic growth, looking at protecting the rights of workers, looking at universal social protection so no one falls into abject poverty, and strengthening dialogue between the workers and employers and governments. Maureen, I don't know about you, but I feel like I just sat in on a master class on what we need to do to make things better in our world. And I think I have my marching orders as a university leader. <laughs> well, and one of the things I heard very strongly is creating productive dialogue versus in the past we've had labor and business and they seem to be at odds. I'm going to get as much for my people. You're going to get as much for your people rather than how do we create sustainable systems that promote fair wages and benefits and support the growth of the enterprise, sustainable growth, not one-time growth. And so that seems like it could be a significant mindset shift for a lot of people. We think back on the ILO's history of 100 years. We look at you know how we've structured the organization. And so the private sector has always been a part of that because when we were first brought into being, you know, our modern capitalist uh, system wasn't the only economic model in the world. I mean, it was really at the beginning of that. One of our first conventions was looking at hours of work. And we joke around with people that the ILO brought you the weekend. But who brought us the weekend? We're employers. I mean, Henry Ford used to give people time off to, first of all, recuperate because the body needs to recuperate, but also time to spend the money that they have earned for themselves and also to buy one of Ford's cars. So it's, it's in the interest of business to treat their workers as their most valuable resource. Any HR director will tell you that getting the right people in there is going to increase productivity, 
profitability. It's going to create a more fluid workspace that people are going to be able to feel comfortable. They're going to feel that the company cares about them. And young people today want to know and want to work for companies that they respect. And that's where you're getting this molecularization of business where companies will be created by individuals. I mean, it'll be a new dynamic in the world of work. The traditional huge companies, some of them will still exist, but businesses and the people who work for those companies will constantly be changing and finding new modalities of operation. And the best way to do that is to go into that with eyes open and communicating with one another and ensuring that the future is a collective future. I talked, Kevin, about ecosystem approaches, universities working with nonprofits and government agencies, as well as corporate interests to identify what the needs are to help prepare, to provide resources across our boundaries to support employment and workforce development. If you were pointing me in the direction of exemplars in this work of convening groups across borders, who would you suggest that we take a look at as shining examples of that work? Yeah, I like to think the ILO is one of those groups. <laughs> you know, it's it's a good question. I mean, I don't know if I have a, a pat answer, right? I mean, I, I come from the international organizations. I started my career at the UN when I was 21, 37 years later, when I'm still only 25. I don't know how that happened. But uh, I, I think the idea about seeing that success is not an individual sport, it is a group sport. And if the country is working together and government does its job by investing in the infrastructure, investing in its people, ensuring that we have the opportunity, access to finances, and all of the elements that governments can provide, which private sector and individuals cannot. Business coming up with the innovations, with the investments and the ideas, absolutely incredible. And now with a globalized economy, it brings all of that together. So we do need to have for example, the G7, the G20, right? I mean, the G20 represents 80% of the global economy, 60% of the population, 75% of the trade. So in the G20 comes together and the G20 has just said that we need to take this human-centered approach. I take that as a really important endorsement of what we can do moving forward. So by sitting down at the UN, being a part of that, today COP26 has just started looking at climate change. And you have people from those who are what would be considered tree huggers back in the day who are front and center on this communication about how do we have a sustainable world? Because we also need business continuity as well, too. If businesses stop, as we have seen through pandemics or through floods or through other natural disasters, the West being ravaged by fires, the Midwest being inundated with storms and floodings, and basically farmers need rain, but too much rain, you can't grow your crops. So I think we need to look at these big solutions to big global problems because things are changing. And when we are at the top of that, if we don't show compassion for others, we are not going to be shown compassion down the line when we are not the top of that pyramid any longer. So having a rights-based approach, seeing ourselves as, you know, and, and again, I come at it from a human rights approach. You know, we are sentient beings. We find identity in the work that we do. Sigmund Freud said that work is the way in which we connect with reality, which is pretty spot on as far as I'm concerned. But we also have to have an identity that it's not just about us versus them. How do we work together? How do we pull it together? And there are a lot of good ideas around the world. There are a lot of good policies that other countries are coming up with that sometimes developed countries, even here in the United States, we don't listen to because we think we've got a better mousetrap. I think we can learn and I think we need to open up our eyes and I think we need to communicate better for a inclusive and a sustainable future. We have a few more minutes, although that would be the beautiful ending to the show. <laughs> Christopher works more with global multilateral organizations. I work more with corporations, some international and some domestic. As someone working with predominantly CEOs and senior teams, how do we help them think about this because I think waiting for the global guidance, we miss the opportunity to make great progress concurrently. You've set up a perfect question for me, right? The ILO as a tripartite organization, unlike any other UN agency, is set up from the very inception. It's in our DNA to have workers and employers sit down and speak with one another. So in order for businesses to be part of that change, they should join the conversation. The ILO is the only international platform where businesses, businesses can sit down and actually have a hand in shaping international labor standards. 
you know, labor is an economic term, but it means more than that, right? It's how do we get this knowledge that we have or this idea or innovation that we have into a product and a good product that we can sell to many people and, and have a going concern. I think that's great. We need that. So if businesses are working in the United States, there's a U.S. Council for International Business. That's our employer's organization. Please talk to them, to our colleagues, speak to them about what they can do. You have a voice in the future of your company in the international setting. It's the same with workers through workers' organizations, not always trade unions. Sometimes it is a, a bit of a loose affiliation. But I think when people feel valued and people feel that you are looking after their interests, they're going to be more productive. They're going to be more energetic. They're going to be more dedicated to developing and ensuring that that company is successful. So companies should work with us. They should be a part of that project. The UN doesn't allow them to do that. It's not set up that way. The ILO is the only institution that does that. And because we have observer status in the General Assembly, the Security Council, the G7, the G20, we can echo that knowledge and those concerns of businesses globally to the policymakers who are going to be making those decisions. So I would certainly encourage them to join us. Kevin, there are tons of works that the ILO puts out to. How would I access your reports and information to inform my thinking? The ILO is the best kept secret in the UN, and our website is also the labyrinth of uh, no return. <laughs> Sometimes it's very hard to find the materials. As a part of our work and what we do is we have a really large research body and a very large statistical body. So with all of that information that we have, we're able to do the analysis and contribute that for policymakers uh, through recommendations that we make. The ILO is constantly putting up reports. There was a report just the other day that was shared on the just transition. There was a report the other day about how to address the productivity cap. Last week, there was a report that came out on uh, improving gender responsive policies. So the ILO is constantly coming out with this information. I have to admit, I'm trying to distill that down because no one really has time today to read 175 pages of very interesting analysis, but we want to get to the point. So I, I think the issue for us is that we have to do a better job communicating, but our main focus is on ensuring that the analysis and the research that we do is solid and can stand on its own. So for many people in the business community, you may know there is the Ruggie principles, which harkens back to business and human rights of the UN, the UN principles on that. That's actually the ILO's Declaration on Fundamental Principles and Rights at Work. Going back to the original document, you can see why it's important for businesses. So come to our website, see the information there, join us for our webinars. We do a lot of webinars with really interesting people, top thinkers, people who are developing policies, sitting down, talking about these issues in granularity, which is absolutely what we need in order for people to have access to information, not access to excessive information. So really distilling that down. I'm just overwhelmed right now. Kevin shared so much wisdom with us today, and I think our audience is going to really benefit from understanding the dynamics, the trends and the signals of the future, and how we can help shift that to have a better future. And I love the human-centered approach that really brings together multilateral cooperation in a country and also globally, again, because I've been so fascinated by immigration and creating spaces for refugees that are safe harbors for them to find a next life and be productive. I love that there is an organization that is attending to what that looks like, both on the employee side and on the worker company side and community. And how do our communities adapt? Because you use the term other. How do we help move from our people and their people or my tribe and their tribe to um, more embracing that we as human beings, you call us sentient beings, most people want a good job, safe conditions, supporting their families. Whether you're a billionaire or someone living on $2 a day, the basic wants, I think, are still the same. Now, certainly Bill Gates may want some things differently than someone living in a refugee camp. And if we can strip away the differences and find the shared humanity, it seems like we create opportunities to really work through the challenges we all face. If I may, just uh, two quick comments. The first one is just to say about the issue of compromise. You know, compromise has been given a bad rap. It's a dirty word, right? I mean, because compromise means I don't get everything my way. But 
as a species and through policy dialogue, compromise is the way we move forward. It's the way in which we take into account the disparate ideas of different people. And anyone who works in business realizes that just because it's your idea doesn't mean that somebody else can't improve upon that or that somebody else's idea won't work. And the more ideas you have, the better the outcome is for that. So compromise is for us absolutely essential. And as you can imagine with a tripartite organization, compromise is not always easy, but it is essential. The other aspect on partnerships is that the ILO doesn't do this on its own and sits there as a kind of academic institution on a hill in Geneva. The ILO is working with many different partners. In the UN system, we work with UN women looking at issues of care economy and addressing the gender gaps. We work with the Human Rights Council on addressing issues from persons with disabilities, freedom of uh, association, exploitation of children, violence against women. We work with the World Health Organization on how to make post-pandemic workplaces safe, looking at occupational safety and health. Occupational safety and health, if you're better at that, you reduce your overheads on insurance premiums. Very, very important for businesses to reduce costs to ensure that they're doing the right thing. We work with UNICEF on eradicating child labor, on promoting education. We work with the International Organization of Migration on labor migration, on fair recruitment. We work with the European Union on future of work issues. We work with United Nations Environmental Program on the just transition to a green economy. We work with all of these different agencies in order to ensure that we bring the ideas globally and be able to find solutions. And the solutions are not always the same. Developing countries started at an asymmetrical power relationship. They need a bit more assistance. But the importance of that is that those countries one day will have the opportunity themselves to become an economic powerhouse, to be a socially progressive society, and that will actually support all of us. So instead of thinking, how do we divide up a static pie, how do we make that pie bigger? And we do that through respecting one another, through dialogue, and through social justice. I love the idea and some of the words you've used that we're looking at, and Christopher talks about this, that as we leave the planet and see the planet as a whole being, whole entity, and all of us on it share the globe. We're not an us and a them. We are fundamentally living on this planet as a species in harmony with the planet that we inhabit and with the other species and with each other. And only through that sense of interconnection will we be able to find peace and justice and prosperity for everyone. The League of Nations came out of World War I. The United Nations came out of World War II. Hopefully coming out of this pathogen, it'll never go away and there'll be others. But coming out of this moment in time, I hope that we find a cause to work together mutually because our survival not only just economically, but just physically, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food that we ingest, all of that has to be done together. And if we don't see it as such, we're going to have hard times ahead. Kevin, thank you for your wise words, for sharing your experience with us and your insight from the work of an exceptional organization in the International Labor Organization. We're so blessed to have you today. Thank you. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you both Kevin and Christopher for the work you do as we're coming out of the pandemic and as we're dealing with climate catastrophes and all of the issues we were facing before. I am so heartened to see the breadth and the depth of the work you're doing. It gives me hope that we have a path forward. So thank you for the work and for your time out of what I can only imagine is an incredibly busy life. Thank you for the invitation. Wonderful to be here.